Hi, this is Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith with the National Police Association, and this is the NPA Report. You know, here at the beginning of the year, one of the things we really wanted to talk about is police officer mental health. So um, right off the bat, I thought about this guy. We've never actually met in person, but uh, we kind of run in parallel circles, know a lot of the same people, and have been social media buddies for a while, and uh, I finally get to have him on my show. Uh, Sergeant Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Hey, so um, you're you're a retired police sergeant like me, but you're also a best-selling author. You're a public speaker, and uh, and you're a real advocate for our profession when it comes to police officer mental health. Tell me how that started. So, as you mentioned, I'm a retired police sergeant. Uh, my story started. As a brand new patrol sergeant, I was involved in a fatal officer shooting. And after that event, uh, my life literally spiraled downward to the point where I almost lost everything. I endured a four-year federal lawsuit where I actually ended up on trial in San Francisco, you know, one of the worst places you could imagine. I lost my marriage, started having health problems. Uh, Literally, it got so bad, it got to the point where I didn't want to be here anymore and I wanted to die in the line of duty. And I started purposely putting myself in dangerous situations, hoping that somebody killed me. And that's how dark and how bad it got. And there's actually another very tragic event that happened that pulled me out of this darkness and gave me the strength and courage to ask for help. And I'm so glad I did because I wouldn't be here today had I not. Right. Oh, absolutely. So, so you were able to, um, you were able to overcome, I know, just incredible stress, strife, and darkness. And now you go on to uh, to help others. How were you able to overcome all that? So the, the tragic incident that actually woke me up out of this darkness was I was on duty. It was November 2016, a week after Thanksgiving, um, getting ready to go home. And a suicide in progress came out and it turned out it was at my best friend, John Davison's house. He was a Vietnam veteran, but he was also a 35 year reserve officer with my department. And we rode together. We were best friends for many years. And I had no idea that, that he was struggling and dealing with post-traumatic stress injury. And I, I got to the hospital right when the ambulance brought him in and he had stabbed himself in the torso, slit both wrists, OD'd on multiple prescription medications. And He was in and out of consciousness, and they rushed him off to emergency surgery. And I remember sitting in that hospital for hours with his sister and with people from my department, and all I felt was this guilt and the shame as to why I didn't do something to stop this. You know, why didn't I see the signs? And I started blaming myself. But the real power was I started thinking about my my very young daughter, and I started to think, what's going to happen if I do that to myself? If I'm not here, is she going to blame herself? And what's going to be the ripple effect, you know, on her and maybe her children and so on, because these tragic events, I mean, they have ripple effects for years and generations for that matter. But that incident about a month after that on the anniversary of my shooting is when I finally asked for help. And how, because we hear all these stories and I want people to understand that, especially people not involved in, in law enforcement, it's, it's, it's not um, easy to ask for help as a police officer, first of all, because of our personalities. 
but also really very often there's nowhere to turn, right? You know, you go to the agency or you go to human resources or you go to your employee assistance program. And very often that can, that can trigger a, a whole bunch of, uh, a whole bunch more negativity for your average cop, can it? Absolutely. I call that admin betrayal or institutional betrayal. And I actually dealt dealt with that. And I go into real depth about that in my book, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But what you just brought up it is actually, that's what usually pushes officers over the edge. It's not the traumatic incidents themselves, but it's when they need help and their agencies or their quote unquote blue family turns their back on them. And we realize that we're literally just a number filling a position and we don't matter. And that's, that's right there is what pushes people over the edge. And unfortunately, um, during my recovery process, my agency was very supportive in the beginning, but a few months into it, when I was starting to get better, then they started trying to talk me into retirement. When in reality, this is a calling for me. This is something I'd wanted to do since I was a child. And that really, really affected me. And, and in, in reality, what the what the agency, you know, does or doesn't do can push you backwards. Right. It, it, you know, um, further traumatize you um, and uh, and cause all kinds of difficulties for us. Michael, we have been talking about this, you know, my virtually my whole career, you know, for the for the last, you know, 35 years, um, we've been talking about police officer mental health. Why? are we so lousy still at dealing with it? What, what do you think needs to change? Well, the entire culture needs to change because right now there's a stigma associated with mental health or asking for help. It's viewed as a sign of weakness and it's, it's viewed as, you know, people can't trust you. They want to outcast you. And in reality, what we're talking about is as law enforcement officers and all first responders for that matter, we're exposed to hundreds and hundreds of traumatic incidents over our career. And that's not normal. That's not natural. But what is natural is that having an effect on us at some point. And, and really, we just need to acknowledge that. It doesn't have to be this huge ordeal. But if we change the culture in the very beginning of our careers, you know, starting in the training academies, bringing that forward in the field training program, um, things like that, where we actually have our leaders at all levels, and this is the key. They need to set the example by being vulnerable themselves because officers don't trust the system. And if you're not vulnerable yourself and showing that it's OK to talk about this, no officer out there is going to ask for help or admit they need help. And what we do instead is we turn to these negative coping mechanisms like alcohol, drugs, you know, extramarital affairs, gambling addictions, porn addictions. I mean, I could go on, but we use these very negative things to kind of numb us and make us forget about really what's affecting us. And the reality is, like I said, this is normal. It's okay for these things to affect us because we're human. And so let's change this culture. Let's normalize these discussions. And although I was ashamed and embarrassed when I first asked for help, now looking back, I know today it's the most courageous, bravest thing I've ever done. It was nothing in the military. It was nothing on the streets and law enforcement. It was literally saying, you know what? I give advice every day out there on the street to, to strangers. I tell them how to solve their problems. But I don't look and work to myself and use that same advice to solve my problems. And that's what we need to do. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So speaking of courageous, you decided to sit down and write a book, a book that has been really 
really well received. Tell me about that decision and that process. So I, I've got to bring up Dr. Shauna Springer, amazing, amazing woman. She is a culturally competent clinician. She's actually a psychologist. Um, she had written three books before this, and she's worked with combat veterans, with the VA, uh, the TAPS, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors and First Responders. And she literally reached out to me on LinkedIn. We didn't know each other. And she kind of just wanted to introduce herself and share her work uh, with stellate ganglion block, which is a medical procedure to treat post-traumatic stress. And we talked about that in the book. Uh, but during that conversation, she said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, it's funny you asked me that. I've been asked before. But with post-traumatic stress, I don't think I have the focus or the concentration or even the will to do something like that. And so we left our conversation at that. A couple months later, right before COVID, she calls me back and says, look, I have heard hundreds of trauma stories, but your story is really sticking with me. And I think your stories can save countless lives. And I want to make this project happen for you. And it was at that very moment I said, let's do it. And so we actually started this process when COVID happened. We didn't even meet in person for a year and a half into this project. And this project is very, very unique. Um, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. The uniqueness of it is that not only is it stories firsthand from a seasoned law enforcement veteran, but Doc Springer, every single chapter, she has her own section where she breaks it down, she explains it in a very easy to understand sense that anybody reading this book, whether you're a first responder, a loved one of one, or just a random person on the street, you are now going to see the true human behind the badge. I mean, this book, it's saving lives, it's saving relationships, saving careers every single day. That's, that is, I know your story is just such an amazing one because the, the, the book came to be really at a time when I think law enforcement started to get far more focused on our own mental health and our physical health as well, because we lost so many officers to COVID-19 and, and the vast majority of those officers were not healthy to begin with. We do, we have to admit that, you know, we're not just very often mentally unhealthy, but we often um, have obesity issues. We have addiction issues. We have uh, diabetes, uncontrolled high blood pressure, all of those things um, that can, can affect us, not just mentally, but Physically. Now, I want to go back and have you explain something you talked about. Um, so did you have the block? And I want you to explain to people what that is. It, it's it's fascinating. But when you explain it, I think it freaks people out a little. Absolutely. And so, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I'm going to explain it the best way I can. So um, I have had the procedure, but stellate ganglion block has actually been around for over 100 years. It's a procedure that was first discovered to treat pain. So it started out as a pain block. And over 20 years ago, a doctor discovered by accident that it could actually be used to treat post-traumatic stress. And it's been used by the military for many, many years. And ironically enough, there was actually a 60 Minutes episode on this years ago. You can actually Google it. You can bring it up. But what it is, is um, they basically take an anesthetic, which is commonly used in labor and delivery or childbirth. And they deliver it to a specific bundle of nerves in your neck. Um, usually you do it on the right side first. And if that doesn't work, you try the left side. And the whole concept is that this doesn't cure post-traumatic stress, 
But what it does do is it alleviates the physical symptoms, the fight or flight of post-traumatic stress. And by injecting that anesthetic in that bundle of nerves, that bundle of nerves that, that they choose actually controls the amygdala, which is the primitive part of the human brain. And that's the part that makes you feel jumpy or want, want to run away or panic or you start to sweat or, you know, the, the actual physical symptoms. And so it really can either reduce or stop those symptoms altogether. And for me, I noticed immediate effect. I mean, the procedure itself was painless. I think the procedure itself was 10 minutes max, like the prep time before and after was longer. And it's only done by a medical doctor, by an anesthesiologist, and they do it under imaging. So like sonogram or some type of medical imaging so that they know that they're hitting that specific bundle of nerves in your neck. And, and this procedure, I believe it has an 85% effective rate. I mean, very, very high effective rate. Now, it doesn't affect the other functions of your amygdala, right? Because the amygdala is the center for, for many different things, including love and affection, right? Um, so, you know, that those kind of positive uh, things stay intact? Absolutely. In fact, um, there were special operators in the military, like Navy SEALs, Delta, that were concerned about that because they don't want to lose their edge, right? So it doesn't it doesn't reduce that. It just reduces the physical symptoms. You're still going to have your sense of awareness, um, all your body functions. I mean, for me, honestly, I had some enhancements in other areas as a result of this procedure. I won't go into specifics here on this show, um, but I did not have any negative side effects other than I had like a droopy eye for a couple hours, which is um, a normal side effect, but it wears off once the anesthetic um, wears off. But it, like I said, there's no side effects. It's very effective, painless. Um, I encourage people just, you know, Google it, stellate ganglion block for PTS. Very easy to find. Yeah, I have several friends who've had it done and, and uh, I've heard nothing negative about it. I, I think, you know, and so it, it is pretty amazing. And I, Sarge, talk about how severe not just the police officer mental health crisis is but really our our suicide crisis i you know we had another terrible year in 2022 and now we're at the beginning of 2023 um talk about how bad the numbers really are so the numbers first of all that we have as good as they are are very underreported i would estimate at least two to three times underreported and Blue Help has been instrumental in actually tracking these numbers. And that's where I get my resources. That's the numbers that I share. And as of today, right now, we have over 150 suicides just in the United States. Um, and year over year, the suicide numbers far outnumber any line of duty death cause other than COVID. And since Blue Help's been tracking this, I think they go back to 2016, we've had well over 1,100 just police officer suicides reported in this country. And if you figure those numbers are two to three times underreported, I mean, we're potentially talking about well over 3,000 law enforcement officers who have killed themselves. And, and I say this every time, but the, the definitive fact is that we as law enforcement, we are much more likely to die by our own hands than the hands of another. That is a fact, absolute fact. And we spend hundreds of hours training on defensive tactics, firearms, emergency driving, you know, how to protect ourselves from the bad guys on the street. 
but how much time do we invest on protecting us from ourselves? That's what we need to look at. That's what we need to address. How do you bring um, family members and loved ones into this, into the prevention side? Well, here's a beautiful thing, because you just you brought up the perfect example is this book. And I've had countless spouses, parents of, of first responders that have read this book, and it's opened up that conversation. It's let them see that, you know, this is what we're dealing with, because a lot of times as first responders, we don't want to acknowledge it or share it with our loved ones. And I made that mistake. Early on in my career, I said, I'll never bring the job home. I'll never talk about it. And that was a huge mistake because we need to talk about the job, not in graphic details. But when we come home pissed off in our bad mood, we need to make it clear that it's something that happened at work. It's not our family members because they're automatically going to think they did something wrong and they're going to be walking on eggshells around us. So we need to normalize these conversations at home and just say, look, you know, I went to a really horrific car accident today. I saw a girl that was really injured and I just, I need like an hour to decompress, to go shower. I'll be back down. We can have some dinner and we can talk about it. But, I, you know, we need to communicate what we need and, and what's bothering us. So they don't just assume what it is. You know, the National Police Association is an organization that um, also helps citizens understand what they can do to support their law enforcement officers. What what would you say to the average citizen who says, what can I do to, to help my, my local cops? The first thing is, you know, we've had a lot of divide in this country and there's a big, huge movement of anti-law enforcement. And the first thing you can do is just simply show appreciation. And if you see a law enforcement officer, like at Starbucks or on the street or walking by, you know, simply say hi or ask them how they're doing. Just try to engage in a, in a normal conversation. And, and you're going to find out quickly that we are just like you. We are no different. We deal with the same things at home. We have the same health issues. We have the same kind of losses. And so just understand that although we're expected to be the, you know, the last call, when you call 911, we've got to go into that most dangerous situation. And we are willing to put our lives on the line every single day. But also realize that we're human and we have feelings and things affect us. And like I said, just by being friendly and acknowledging us, that really makes a huge difference. And a simple thank you, I can't tell you, like, when I when I got a thank you, that made my day. It was like, when you get a sincere just thank you from somebody where they come up, look you in the eye and shake your hand and say, you know, sir, ma'am, I just want to thank you for what you do. I mean, that goes so far. So what's up now for you? I know you're going out there and spreading the message. Um talk about that we we've, we've got uh we got about a minute for you to talk about what you're doing right now and then we'll talk about where people can find you so i do speak all across the country um, primarily to law enforcement agencies or like wellness symposiums or training conferences um, but i also speak to the military i'll be speaking in kansas in february um, i'll be speaking in the san francisco bay area in may and really what i'm doing is i'm going out there and sharing my story so that people know they're not alone because I'm not special and I'm not unique. There's nothing about me that is. I'm just willing to talk about what other people aren't. And so by me sharing this, it lets other people see that, okay, I'm not alone. But more importantly, I'm living proof that you can come out the other side of post-traumatic stress injury. And I'm living a better life. I'm a better father today, a better partner than I ever was. And that's, that's the whole point behind this is know that there is hope. 
there is help and you can get better. Now, where can people uh, get the book and where can they find you on social media? So Relentless Courage is only available on Amazon. Uh, it's hard copy, paperback, and Kindle. I'm all over social media, so you can find me on LinkedIn under just Michael Sugru. Uh, but on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Parler, even Trump social media, it's all Sergeant Michael Sugru. Um, and the other page and group that I run is called First Responders First. And those pages are also on Facebook and Instagram. So you can find me on any of those platforms, any of those pages. I'm so glad you talked about thanking a cop because the National Police Association, we have a couple of things we do. One is a thank you note program where people can, can go to our website, nationalpolice.org, and you can download thank you notes and, and learn how to deliver them to your local police department. And we get pictures of departments who've gotten them. And like you said, a heartfelt thank you is the most amazing thing to get from the community that you're trying to keep safe. The other thing that we have is the Thank a Cop billboard program. And uh, and you can go to our website or you can go to our social media and you can see our Thank a Cop billboards uh, that are all over this nation. And, uh, and I've seen a couple of them on my travels and it's so cool to be driving down the freeway. And, uh, and there's a huge billboard that says, thank a cop that absolutely helps it's a it's a small thing to have someone thank you but it really helps doesn't it mike it does i mean it can absolutely make your day absolutely absolutely i'll tell you what we cannot thank you enough for a for what you do um for putting yourself out there for writing the book and for spending some time with us and if you would like more information about the national police association visit us at nationalpolice.org Put the gun down! Put the gun down! Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.